Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Performing a major experiment on your own children is a bit unconventional, but that didn't stop Laszlo Polgar. He studied education and decided that the education system was just for producing what he called the gray average mass, and that if he could give uh, his own children a very special and, and specialized and intensive type of education, a certain skill early on, he could turn them into geniuses, essentially. Author David Epstein argues Polgar's experiment was not only worth paying attention to, but in the years after it launched, it became a powerful example of what real unrelenting focus could get you. And this was, for him, about a lot more than his own kids. It was about proving that any child could be turned into a genius with his early specialized training. So that he was just he was just using his example, and he decided to pick chess. As at the time, um, chess was sort of a Cold War proxy. Like there had just been this big U.S. Russia match, and it was it was sort of deemed um, you know chess became pop culture basically all of a sudden. So in the late 1960s, when Polgar's first daughter Susan was born, it didn't take long before he tried to mold her into a genius. I was uh, very fortunate in that uh, I was very successful in my very first tournament. Uh, I won my, uh, had my first victory in the Budapest Elementary School Championship uh, when I was just four and a half years old. Susan won all 10 of the games that she had to play in that elementary school tournament, and her dad knew there was some major potential here. What really caught me, I think, is the fairness of the game, Mm. that Unlike in real life, in, on the chessboard, kind of the logic, the good versus the bad, always prevails. He clipped 200,000 different game sequences, this was before computer chess, um, you know, out, of, out of magazines and, and organized them in a card catalog so she could study. And when she was four, she went to a, a chess club in Budapest and with her feet dangling from the chair, beat, beat some grown men and uh, rose up to become the best female player in the world. And... The same or similar happened with her sisters. Her, her sister, that was Susan Polger. Her sister, Sophia, became an international master, so she didn't quite make it to grandmaster status. But then Judith Polger became, um, you know, ranked top 10 in the world, men or women, so was the greatest female player uh, to date at that point. The story of Laszlo Polgar and his experiment, his notion that you can make your child a genius if they just focus early, it got a lot of attention. It was told and written about over and over again. And it seemed like proof positive. Specialization was the way to go. If you worked hard enough for long enough, maybe you too could raise a grandmaster or be a grandmaster. But, says David Epstein, Polgar's experiment had a major flaw. Epstein is the author of the book Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And he argues that parents or education experts seeking to learn from what Polgar did might want to be careful. The reason I tell it is actually because chess turns out to be, in some ways, a uniquely poor example from which to extrapolate to other skills, because it is what the psychologist Robin Hogarth calls a kind learning environment. And what that means is there are clear rules. uh, Your next steps and goals are completely clear. Patterns repeat. You get feedback on what's done immediately, and it's totally accurate. And that's so so you learn just um, just by doing the same thing over and over and over. But life, of course, isn't as controlled as chess. It's generally more chaotic and less kind. If you're a teacher, for example, your students aren't predictable. If you're a doctor, your patients aren't predictable. 
And Epstein, who has spent years poring over the data on whether it makes sense to specialize early, he says, we've paid too much attention to a few high-profile stories about the awesomeness of quickly narrowing your focus. The research actually supports something completely different, the power, even as an adult, of being a generalist. If you get a patient in the ER, you might not even know what happens with them at follow-up. So you have to find you have to find different ways to learn other than instant feedback. In fact, so these are called wicked learning environments. And one of the one of the examples Hogarth uses is actually in the that he loves is in the medical context, since you mentioned it, of this very famous New York City physician who became renowned and and you know wealthy because again and again he could predict that a patient would develop typhoid before they showed a single symptom, like weeks before they showed a single symptom. And he would do this by palpating their tongue or feeling around their tongue with his hands. Hmm. And as one of his uh, colleagues later observed, he was a more productive carrier of typhoid than even typhoid Mary using just his hands. Um, So it turned out that he was the one spreading the typhoid with his hands, so his predictions Hmm. were always correct. Hmm. And so that's a wicked learning environment because the feedback teaches the exact wrong lesson. Most of us aren't in that wicked of a learning environment either, but most of us are not in in sort of the, the, the chess area of the spectrum in our work either. So he didn't realize he was spreading typhoid, but he was like learning the wrong lesson again and again about how great he was at predicting what would happen. Exactly. His accurate predictions were reinforcing exactly the wrong lesson. So it was hmm. very different from chess in that way where all the information is clear, that feedback is immediate, the patterns are just repetitive, and they teach you the correct lesson. So you just get better um, with experience. In, in in this guy's case, he was not getting better with experience. And that turns out to be the trend in, in most of the things that we consider like complicated work, where uh, there's, there's now a long line of scientists kind of starting in the mid-20th century showing that in many of these jobs, with repetitive experience, people become more confident, but, but not actually better. You uh, tell another story about specialization that people are going to recognize pretty quickly. Um, it's about a little kid, um, really, really little kid, um, who learned a sport very early. You opened the book with it. Uh, do you want to tell that story? Yeah. So this story becomes familiar pretty quickly. So a kid whose father gave him a putter, at not, not because he necessarily wanted him to be a golfer, but just gave it to him as a toy when he was seven months old. And he, he dragged it around everywhere in his little baby walker. And by 10 months, he was imitating a swing. By two years old, he was on national television um, showing off his, his swing in front of Bob Hope. Uh, by three, his father was media training him, and you know, fast forward, and by 21, Tiger Woods is the greatest golfer in the world. Mm. And like the Polgers, th- this became even more famous in the performance area and literature than the Polgers, probably the most famous story of development of all time. Um, and again, which has been extrapolated to all these other things, starting in sports, which said, look at what Tiger did. We should push all youth athletes to specialize and then branching out from there to even other domains. But again, Golf is like really the epitome of a kind learning uh, environment where it's almost like an industrial task where you're trying to do the same things over and over with as little deviation as possible. And again, that is that's not even representative of most of the sports world uh, as from a skill acquisition science standpoint. Never mind the rest of the the wider world. Hmm. So, I mean, you argue that people should be more generalists than than they are right now. That we tend to push this idea of specialization and we think this is a really great thing. You should do that. But it seems like in this very, very complicated world, you would want specialists. Like I think about something like the sewer system. I don't know how sewer systems work, 
But hopefully you have people who do know how sewer systems work. You hire those people in every distinct city and they help you, they're engineers, whatever, they help you to understand how this system works. And so it seems like in an incredibly complex world that has only gotten more complex in the last, I don't know, few hundred years, uh, certainly since the Industrial Revolution, it seems like specialization would be the way to go. Yeah, and so and for sure, as I as I mentioned repeatedly throughout range, we need specialists, no question, no question about it. I like the way that Freeman Dyson, the eminent physicist and mathematician, framed it, where he said we need both birds and frogs. Frogs are down looking at all the the small details, and the birds are up above, not seeing those details, hmm. but can integrate the knowledge of the frogs. And he says the problem is that we're telling everyone to be frogs, basically, and and that shows up in some of the areas where you would think specialization is the most beneficial. So, so take medicine, for example. That, that's probably the, um, you know, the, one of the first things that jumps to mind outside of sports when you think of the need for specialization. And in medicine, specialization has been both inevitable and beneficial. However, the, the sort of delegitimizing of the generalist practitioners has led to these incredibly perverse outcomes. So specialists now are so specialized that they only tend to look at what's called surrogate markers. They're no longer looking at the whole organism of a human. They're looking at one tiny piece of this this more complex puzzle. And so they'll do something like one of the most famous, um, you know, blood pressure medications, or not famous, one of the most widely prescribed blood pressure medications. Um, Turns out, you can prescribe it, it lowers people's blood pressure, but then they just die of heart attack and stroke at the exact same rate with better blood pressure numbers. Hmm. And and we're having all sorts of um, problems like this where specialists are so focused on a marker that is not the thing you actually care about, right? What you care about is people, if they're dying of heart attack or stroke, um, you don't care that their numbers are just lower, but all the specialists are only looking at these tiny proxies for what you want and assuming that that creates the endpoint you want for the complex system. And we've had some major backfires there, which is why one of the studies I cited noted that you're less likely to die if you're checked in for a cardiac problem to a hospital during the dates of a national cardiology conference when the specialist cardiologists are away because you're less likely to get a procedure that they do over and over and over that, that fixes some proxy marker but does not actually make you more likely to live and can have very serious side effects. So so to her credit, one of the cardiologists who, who wrote the journal editorial about that study said, you know, my colleagues and I would joke that our conferences are the safest place to, to have a heart problem, and this totally turns that on its head. So mm-hmm. you, you really also, in addition to these specialists, need someone who's zoomed out looking at the outcomes, the larger outcomes you actually care about, not just the pieces, the reductionist pieces of, of the puzzle in isolation. That's a really incredible notion that we've gotten so sort of laser-focused. And I've heard people say it about um, science, too, that we've gotten so laser-focused that sometimes we can't see where interactions with other parts of the body or um, other medications or other pieces of science might be. I I wonder how much you think uh, medical professionals themselves— are aware of this and wonder if they should roll the specialization back at all? No, that's a great question. Um, and I think there's a burgeoning awareness of this, uh, but, I, but I think it's slow change. You know, it's like the oil tanker. You have to start steering it from 40 miles out or whatever to, to land at the right place. And so the Cleveland Clinic, for example, one of the, one of the sort of, um, you know, almost epidemic overuse cases is for cardiac stents, not for people who have heart attacks, but for people who just have stable chest pain, basically, 
where they will get a stent that it's like a tube that opens up your artery. So they have some chest pain. They have a narrowed artery, um, you know, upon imaging, and you open it up, right? How could that not work? Like, it's like a kitchen sink. But actually, it turns out the body, we didn't design it, and it's not like a kitchen sink. And 12 randomized controlled trials um, have shown that that does not help. Mm. Uh, and so the Cleveland Clinic said, okay, let's separate compensation from procedures because that'll fix the problem if the doctors aren't getting paid to do these procedures. And it made a dent. But it did not even get close to wiping out the problem. And it turns out that the problem is much more about specialists getting used to a certain procedure and, and thinking that it's, you know, they, they have basically the if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail problem. And so it goes beyond even the compensation issues. Um, and so some of the people that have recognized these things, like one of the, the characters um, in the end of the, the book named Arturo Casadevall, who's arguably like the most influential immunologist in the world, just went to Johns Hopkins School of Public Health to start a program that de-specializes the education of future scientists and doctors, which is, you know, facing pushback from some of his colleagues. Like I, I saw him describing this on a panel that was about the so-called replication crisis in science right now, where most science is turning out not to be true. Right. Like you try to do it again in another lab and you're like, I can't replicate this experiment. It doesn't turn out for me. That's right. It was like three out of 50 famous cancer studies or something that were able to be replicated. And it turns out that's because of largely because of poor methodology. So I was a science grad student, and I was rushed into like very narrow study of Arctic plant physiology um, before I was taught anything about scientific thinking and statistics and these broader skills. And I now realize in retrospect, as an investigative reporter, I realized that I have, that I'm sure my work wouldn't replicate because I did some kind of statistical malpractice that I didn't even understand at the time, mm. that I came to learn as a reporter. So, so Casa Deval wants to teach those broad skills. And when I saw him on this this panel, the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine said, you know, no way, we can't add more time to the already packed education. And Casadeval said, yeah, get rid of all that didactic reductionist stuff that's in one ear and out the other and teaches them that the body is like a, you know, just like a robot. And we have to teach them how to think. Hmm. Let's go back to some of the research that first started scholars thinking maybe specialization, even though maybe it does really work great in chess, maybe it works fantastic in golf, um, maybe it's not the way to go with everybody. And you talk about this really interesting phenomenon, which is that um, over the course of the 20th century, IQ scores started to go up. And people started to look into this and try to figure out, like, what what's going on here? How could people be getting smarter? Um, do you want to talk about, like, what that what that yielded, what that study yielded. Yeah, yeah. This is a phenomenon called the Flynn effect, named after the guy who discovered it, James Flynn. And and it turns out that IQ tests, the the mean, the average is always 100 just because that's how the test makers make it. But it turned out that they were having to keep changing the, the test or sort of updating the scoring system because people were getting more answers right that that were the equivalent of about three points per decade over the course of the 20th century, which turns out to be a lot when it's over multiple decades. Um, so much so that uh, you know, our like great grandparents would look like they were like truly impaired um, because of their scores, and and the the rise has been on a very specific parts of the test. It's been on the most abstract parts of the test, and less on the stuff that you might learn about you know in school. So, particularly one of the tests called Raven's Progressive Matrices just gives you a bunch of abstract designs and patterns, and one is missing, and you have to just deduce rules from looking at them and and fig fill in the one that's missing. And this test was created to be what's called culturally reduced, meaning nothing you've learned in school or life should matter. This can just tell, you know, how smart you are no matter what. This, if Martians land on Earth, this is the test we can give them and tell how clever they are. Okay. And that turns out to be where there was the most improvement on that abstract stuff. 
And what Flynn um, realized was that the sort of complexity of modern, modern life and the way that we've learned to classify knowledge uh, causes us to form these abstract models of all, all of our knowledge. You know, like you can think of simple things like we don't interact with animals very much, but we have a huge amount of knowledge that we can apply between animals because we think of classifications like mammals and, and all these other sorts of abstract concepts right. that were, were not that we take for granted, but that were much were not so natural to people who were more kind of grounded in, in concrete uh, daily life. And so as we've had to become more abstract thinkers and take skills and transfer them across jobs or or open laptops with no instructions or video games and just figure out how to play them, this self-directed trying to figure things out or trying to figure work out, we've gotten better at that sort of abstract thinking, uh, which allows us to transfer our knowledge between domains. So basically, it sounds like we've become generalists. Like people used to know how to do a specific thing. Uh, maybe it was like make shoes. Maybe it was grow wheat. And now we there's so much being thrown at us, we can kind of like toggle back and forth. Is that what you're saying? That's right. And it, it's not to say that one life, you know, mode of thinking is better than the other. It's just it's by any stretch. It's just that one is much more adapted to the kind of modern work where you're often having to take knowledge, where, where it's less chess-like. You're often having to take your knowledge and apply it to situations that you haven't quite seen before. Um, or, or learn a new technology where there's some pr- abstract principles you know, but but it's not exactly what you've done before. So you can't just do the same thing um, over and over. So we've become more generalist in that way. And I think that's that sort of shows in some of the other research I cite, you know, with the explosion of the knowledge economy, like if, some of the patent uh, research I looked at, where if you look at the mid-20th century, the people making the biggest technological breakthroughs were indeed specialists, as shown by these people who would do all of their work in like one technological class as classified by the U.S. Patent Office. And later in the 20th century, that sort of shifted, and the biggest breakthroughs were coming from people who had spread their careers across a larger number of technology classes and would often like bring things together in different combinations. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I think there's – so I don't think this, this being broader or having range, as, as I style it um, – wasn't always necessarily the best. I think it's been getting more important um, as as the world is changing and as everyone is being pushed to specialize. Hmm. So we're going to pause there for a second. I'm talking with David Epstein, author of the book Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And when we come back, what you can learn from the tennis player Roger Federer and what the advent of communism in Russia taught us about being a generalist. If you want to tell us your own stories about specializing versus generalizing, you can tweet at us. We're at iHubRadio. You can also email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Back in just a minute. politics and the human brain collide in unexpected ways, which turned out to be fortunate for Alexander Luria. Luria was a psychologist in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, and he realized that the political push to get rural people to adopt communism could allow him to study some major mental shifts. So he and his colleagues showed up in small villages and started to present people with simple problems, like Here's some wool of various different colors. Can you put this wool into general color families? And the colors were different shades, dark blue, light blue, light yellow, darker yellow, etc. 
But villagers who hadn't been exposed to outside influences, they couldn't categorize the colors. And when pressed, they refused to. And they were well adapted to their lifestyle. Everything was about utility. And no amount of pushing could get them to to think about these more abstract classifications. That's David Epstein, the author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Whether it came to shapes or colors, it was always the same thing. Whereas some of the people who had, um, because they were going through, you know, the revolution in the Soviet unions, and, and so some of them were still in this uh, sort of almost subsistence farming state, and some had been kind of taken out of that and put into more modern interconnected work. And the bigger the dose of modernity, the, the more people were able to form these abstract classes, even if they didn't know the names of shapes or colors or whatever else they were asked to classify, they could they could just quickly see that there was something, sort of a concept uh, that was in common. Epstein says the villagers who hadn't been exposed to modernity in the form of central government control, they were specialists. They knew how to do certain things, make clothes, grow crops, cook food. But they didn't think, as we do, about large quantities of information. We get by. It's called transfers. You can take some knowledge you learned in one place and apply it to some object maybe that you haven't even seen, but gives you a sense of how to classify it. And we get by with transfer, um, like in our daily lives. We have to take skills and concepts from things that we have not directly experienced and apply them to our work. And we take this to granted for granted on a daily basis. We can learn without experience. We don't have to have ever seen an elephant to know it's an animal, and beyond that, it's a mammal. Now, those rural villagers probably had way more survival skills than most of us. But we live in a different sort of world, one that requires lots of general, nonspecific knowledge. And when psychologist Alexander Luria did his work in the 1930s, it was shocking to see a mental shift happening in real time. So when they were asked questions or even um, logic puzzles, you know, if there was this one they were given and I said, where it's cold um, and there's snow, all bears are white. In Novaya Zemlya, uh, it's cold and there's snow. Are the bears white? And they would say, like, well, how would I know? I, I've never been. You know, maybe I could ask someone who'd been there and then know. So they couldn't exercise that kind of formal logic even that allowed them to learn without having experience. Epstein argues that despite pressure to specialize, there are huge upsides to being a generalist in today's world, or at least getting a generalist grounding and then specializing after that. He says too often we've been told about people like Tiger Woods, who picked up a putter before he was a year old and never looked back. But the evidence doesn't support that sort of early specialization, at least in most areas of life. Golf and chess are big exceptions. As a counterpoint to the Woods example, Epstein offers up another sports star, Roger Federer, the record-breaking men's tennis champion, a man who, for a long time, didn't focus on tennis at all. You know, mother was a tennis coach, refused to coach him, kept playing badminton, basketball, soccer long after his peers had had specialized. And that turns out to actually be, if you get away from golf, the, the trend that science shows future elite athletes do a bunch of things early and they gain these broader skills, even if they're not specific to a sport. But that then scaffolds their basically their ability to learn skills later on, uh, the more technical and specific skills. And that's kind of what we do. We have these broader conceptual skills, or you want them and you want to foster those. And then when the time comes to pick up more specific things, um, you know, you have an ability to do that. And, and also the knowledge is more flexible, so you can apply it to things you haven't seen before. And so even though Federer was, let's say, picking up a sport picking up tennis in a, in a real concentrated way, 
five years after maybe a colleague had really, really, really started to focus in on tennis. I guess what you're saying is he can move faster because he just has a whole range of skills. Well, he can be better, better. And so one of the one of the key things you need to do in sports that that move in real time, so not like golf where people are, are waiting to take turns, is use what's called anticipatory skills, where things are actually happening too fast for our biology to just react to them. Um, so that like advice, you know, you give a kid baseball player to keep their eye on the ball. It's like nonsense, actually impossible. We don't have a visual system capable of tracking something that gets that close to our face. <laughs> um, so like you could tell them to close their eyes when the ball were halfway in. If it weren't psychologically upsetting, it would make no difference at all. Um, but so you have to learn how to pick up cues from other players' bodies and, and, and rotation of balls and things like that to see what's coming before it happens. And it, and it appears that people who play a bunch of different what's called invasion sports, you know, where it's happening in real time when they're younger are then better able to pick up any subsequent skills later on and be more flexible uh, as the games get faster. And, and, and it's really analogous to, um, you know, some of the other types of research, like where seventh grade math classrooms, kids were assigned to different types of um, learning environments randomly. Some got what's called blocked practice, where you get a type of problem, problem type A, over and over, A, 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 then B, 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 and so on. And the other group got different types of problems every time. So it's all mixed up, right? And in the mixed up group, the kids more frustrated, uh, rate their rate their learning as, as lower, more frustrated with their teacher, et cetera. They make slower, immediate progress. And then comes test time where everybody has to look at different problems and they blow the group that did the, the more repetitive practice away. Really? So the, the, the order, the effect size was on the order of, of getting a kid from the 50th to the 80th percentile. That, that sort of study is what's called interleaving. Um, what you want is because one group was learning how to execute procedures and the other group was learning how to match strategies to types of problems. And when you're facing, if you're going to face the same type of problem over and over using procedures, great golf, chess. If you have to face totally new problems, then you want this uh, to be able to match a strategy to the problems. You need this sort of broader conceptual knowledge. So are you saying one group got like 10 addition problems, then 10 subtraction problems, then 10 multiplication problems, and the other group got like addition, subtraction, multiplication, multiplication again, subtraction, just like some sort of mixed up order? Yeah, that's 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 okay. an example. But particularly, you would need a different different strategies um, or or different procedures to solve the problem. So yeah, I mean they were a little past like you know addition and subtraction. But okay. yes, that's that's the idea. Totally, all shuffled up. What do you mean by different uh, strategies and different procedures to do a problem? So if you get all the problems, like if you're getting you know quadratic equation, whatever, over and over and over, you learn how to just execute that procedure. Basically, okay. you learn how to use certain rules when you see a certain thing. But if you have the problems all mixed up. You don't get used to just being able to execute the same rules over and over. And so you have to um, try to identify what, what researchers call the deeper structure of the mm. problem. Like what okay. type of problem is this and, and what kinds of strategies can I use to approach it basically? Because – and so you, you can't rely on what's called using procedures knowledge. You have to use instead what's called making connections knowledge where you connect the type of problem to different concepts as opposed to just saying, oh, it's problem type A. So I use the, the algorithm or rules for problem type A. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to David Epstein, author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. So what does that tell you then, uh, what you were just talking about with the, with math in seventh grade, what does that tell you about how we teach and whether we should teach differently? I mean, honestly, it 
it gets at one of the underlying themes of the book, which for me and probably most people is deeply counterintuitive, which is that whether it's sports or math, you can the 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 things the types of training or learning that cause the most immediate progress and often make the learner feel like they're um, making the most progress in the short term and and cause them to rate their teachers more highly can sometimes systematically undermine their long term development. So, the the probably the single most surprising study to me that went into the book was this one done at the Air Force Academy, where the Air Force Academy had this experiment that that you could never recreate. They they bring in full freshman class. They have the freshmen. They have to take start a, co- a sequence of three math courses: calculus one, calculus two, so on. And they are randomized to teachers or professors, then re-randomized for calculus two, and then re-randomized again. So you have this incredible experiment you can do on thousands of students over the years. And these researchers wanted to gauge the impact of teaching. And you again, you'd be really hard pressed to recreate a scenario like this. And what they found was that the teachers who were the best at promoting overachievement in Calculus One, every student in every section has the same test, were their students then went on to underperform in all the follow-on courses. So the, the Calculus One teachers, their students would overperform in Calculus One. They would get the best ratings from the students. The students would rate their learning the best. And then those students would go on to underperform in all the follow-on courses. Oh. And what those researchers concluded is that the, the quickest way to get the best results in your class is to teach a very narrow curriculum that's, that involves using procedures knowledge. So you teach exactly the kind of rules that the kids are going to need to know for the test, but they don't connect it to broader concepts. So when they move on to the next classes, they are hindered. And so, you know, the teacher who got the sixth best ratings and whose students did the seventh best <laughs> on, on the exam in Calculus one. then his students were dead last out of 100 different professors in the follow-on courses. And that's that's bad, right? It means that our intuition about when we're learning the best is not so good. And maybe the ways that we evaluate, you know, this was specifically for college. I don't know if it would be the same at, at lower levels. But I think that theme, that learning that feels like we're making the pr- most progress may often not be. And we really need to be cognizant of that. You know, uh, years ago, I talked to uh, this professor who's kind of famous for talking about learning, uh, Eric Mazur at Harvard. He teaches physics. And he talked about how, like, he used to think, like, he was a really great physics teacher. And he'd come in and lecture, and people thought he was great, and he would get really high uh, evaluations and stuff. And um, one day he read this article about this uh, professor who had decided to just give his students a quiz on like real high level concepts in physics, not related to the chapter, just sort of general things. But do you understand the general idea of physics, how fast things go when they collide, like just general things? So he thought, oh, I'll do that. It's Harvard. Like people are going to do great. It's going to be easy. And he did it. And even his students doing the best didn't know on kind of this most general level, not connected to a specific chapter or specific equations. They didn't understand physics. And he completely had to reevaluate himself and the way he taught because he thought he was doing great up to that point. I mean, that that's super interesting and, and very, you know, self-reflective of him. And and it gets at that issue that the ways that you can get by and do well in the classes often don't have anything to do with the kind of skills and learning you want for the actual world, right? Because those concepts, that's the really important stuff when they have to go out and and create problems for themselves or figure out what questions to ask or apply those concepts to things that aren't kind of constrained in the classroom. So that's, um, uh, you know, 
that's that's not good when right. when we have that situation. And there were a, a, a study I know in range that was on community college students, which happened to be forty percent of college students in the country, um, where their their conceptual knowledge of math was being tested, and there would be a problem where it'd be like, I'm simplifying it, but like you know, five hundred plus two hundred equals seven hundred, and they would say, how can you check this answer? And a student would say, okay, 700 minus 200 equals 500, so it's mm-hmm. right. And then they'd say, what's another way? And the student couldn't come up with 700 minus 500 equals 200 because the student had learned you always subtract the the number to the right of the plus sign from mm-hmm. the number that's on the other side of the equal sign. Mm-hmm. And and the, the professors of students that were seeing this were floored. They were like, I never would have figured out you know, that the student hadn't gotten the concept and instead had just internalized this using procedures knowledge without really knowing anything about you Why know, how, you're doing how this equation is actually yeah. working? Yeah. yeah, and and the professors would say things like, "Gosh, I got into math because I didn't have to memorize anything." You know, so there was the disconnect between what the professors thought the students were taking away and what they were actually taking away was really stark, like the story you just told. Okay, we're going to be back after a quick break for a final few minutes with David Epstein, and we'll talk about what all of this means for adults, including stories of some pretty high-profile career switchers. And if you want to hear this segment again or you want to share it, you can find it on our website, innovationhub.org, or we're on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. about the value of being a generalist, even though we seem to live in an age of hyper-specialized doctors and engineers and professors, and it may seem like being a Renaissance man or woman is a thing of the past. Maybe it worked in the Renaissance. But author David Epstein argues we're actually living at a time when being a generalist and not honing in on your career path too early makes a lot of sense. The work world is changing quite quickly. Right? Like a lot of the, the jobs that, that a lot of people work in didn't even exist necessarily when when they were thinking about what to study. And that's borne out by the evidence. Data collected a few years ago by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York showed that only 27 percent of people who graduated from college were working in fields related to their major. It made a lot of sense to specialize when we were in a more industrial economy where you were facing the same challenge, more similar challenge repeatedly. And it made sense for organizations and companies to be more of the upper out structure where can the you know can the person just move linearly up but as we get into the knowledge economy where you can transfer your skills laterally um, that that becomes a lot easier to take something you're not just stuck facing the same type of problem so if you have these broader problem solving skills or communication skills or whatever the broad skills are you, you can move them through a lot of different types of challenges if you've learned them well But Epstein, the author of the book Range, argues that being a generalist has yet another advantage, an advantage that was discovered by an economist from Northwestern who contrasted how early specializers fared in the long run versus late specializers. The economist, Offer Malamud, saw that England and Scotland, which have a lot in common, differed in how their school systems worked. In England, students had to start specializing in high school years earlier than they had to narrow their focus in Scotland. And what he wanted to see was 
who wins the trade-off, the early or late specializers? The, in Scotland, the, the students could keep sampling longer. And what he found was that the students in England who specialized earlier did indeed jump out to an income lead right after college. But the students in Scotland picked better match quality. That's the economist term for the degree of fit between your interests and abilities and the work that you do because they had a chance to sample and learn about themselves and learn about their options. And so they had much faster growth rates. So they then caught, they quickly caught the the earlier specializers and erased that income difference. And the earlier specializers started quitting their career tracks in much higher numbers because they had been made to match earlier. And so they, they basically made worse decisions. And so I think one of the things that's going on is the more we, we allow people to kind of sample, the more signal they get about themselves and the world and the more chance they have to optimize that match quality. Um, and so they should. Like they should move around. We shouldn't discourage that. Well, what would you say to like a parent or let's say a college kid who hears what you're saying, kind of likes the idea, but is fearful that if you don't take the opportunity to, I don't know, be an electrical engineer right now or to, to do these specialized things – that you're going to be out in a sea of a million generalists um, who, you know, all say, yeah, I can communicate well and I can solve problems. And what does that really mean? And you kind of lose out on the opportunity to get like a job with a stable income. Yeah. I mean, for for one, there, there are not as many people that are great at solving problems as we might think. Like when James Flynn discovered the Flynn effect. I should say that that's the the effect of like people um, having higher IQ scores over the past hundred years, right? Right, right. Okay. That's exactly right. Um, he gave this test of like critical thinking to students at a top American and top British university, and found that there was basically a zero correlation between what got them good grades and their ability to actually do this critical thinking and novel problem solving. So that's that's a bad sign. But um, if if you want to be an electrical engineer, like go for it. I don't think that's a problem at all. What I think you should do is stay attuned to your own match quality. Don't think that that's the track you have to stay on. Continue getting signal as Herminia Ibarra, who studies how people maximize their their match quality, um, says this phrase I love, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is there's all this psychological research that shows actually the commencement speech advice of picture who you're going to be in 10 or 20 years and march confidently toward is not so good because our insight into our own skills and interests is very limited by our roster of previous experiences. So you actually have to try stuff and learn who you are in practice. She says, act and then think, not think and then act. Mm -hmm. So do stuff, you reflect on it. It's called self-regulatory learning. And then maybe you switch and that electrical engineering experience won't be wasted. You can, like, I was living in a tent in the Arctic when I decided for sure to be a writer, and I, I took my, <laughs> my very ordinary science skills and took them over to Sports Illustrated, where I suddenly became an extraordinary sports science writer, right? So that, that won't be wasted. I think the conceptual approach I think of, and I'm a new parent, um, is, is this approach that I wrote about a little called talent-based branching, like from the Army. I'm not saying you should, you know, parent like the Army, but they were having <laughs> a problem as the knowledge economy developed with their most talented officers because they could now transfer their knowledge laterally, were leaving because they would say, all right, well, I want to go to, you know, I can take these like leadership skills and things I've learned and go to like some other company. And they wanted to retain them and they had this upper out structure. So they decided, first they threw money at them and that didn't work. Like the people who were going to stay, stayed and took the money and the ones who were going to go went anyway. And that was a half billion dollars of taxpayer money. Um, But then they started this thing they called talent-based branching, where instead of saying, here's your career path, get up or out, They pair the officer with a coach and they say, here's a bunch of different career paths. You know, try one, dabble in a couple. The coach will then help you reflect on how this fits you. Was it what you thought? Um, Does it interest you? Does it use your talents? Try a bunch of them. We'll see what fits. 
And then you just sort of zigzag your way to better match quality. And so that that's sort of the concept I want to keep in my head where my role as a parent would be to be that coach that helps the person reflect and get the maximum amount of learning about themselves and their possibilities in the world from each one of those experiences. And there's a bunch of people who uh, went on to become incredible successes. Uh, you read about J.K. Rowling, about uh, Vincent Van Gogh. We did a segment on um, Dr. Seuss. These were people who all found the thing they were really good at it was not like the first thing they tried. Sometimes it wasn't the second or third thing they tried. Oh, yeah. I mean, right, like Van Gogh was almost 30 when he picked up Guide to the ABCs of Drawing. Um, and, and then he quickly got recommended to take a class with with ten year olds. But that's sort of that that's that's kind of the norm. I mean, we're obsessed with precocity, right? And so when we hear the Tiger Woods story, we extrapolate it to everything, even though it's even though we never hear the Roger Federer story, even though that's the one that's representative of the science. When we hear you know Mark Zuckerberg at twenty two say young people are just smarter. It doesn't make as big of a bang when then, you know, the MIT and Northwestern, the Census Bureau, put out research that shows actually the average age of a founder of a blockbuster startup on the day of founding, not when it becomes a blockbuster, is like 45 and a half or something. Wow. Right? We don't, we just don't internalize that stuff. Mm -hmm. We just use the dramatic stories. And those people usually have to do some zigzagging ahead of time. So that's, that was kind of the trend too in this, this research I, I discussed called the Dark Horse Project at Harvard where, um, these researchers were looking at basically people who found fulfillment in their work, essentially. And what they found was that most of those people came in and said, oh, you know, don't tell anybody to do what I did because I did these other things first and I thought I was going to be this other thing and I just sort of accidentally happened into some other opportunity and all this. And so they all view themselves as having come out of nowhere. That's why the researchers named it the Dark Horse Project. Not all of them, but most of them, the people that found this fulfillment, they don't say, here's my long-term thing, I better get started. They say, their, their common trait is basically short-term planning. They say, here's who I am today. Here are my skills and interests. Here are the opportunities in front of me. And this is the one I'm going to try. And then maybe a year from now, I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. So sometimes they make long-term goals, but not before a period of experimentation. So does all this mean to you, you know, the famous 10,000 hours rule that people took from what Malcolm Gladwell has written? Does that say to you, like, mm, maybe take a pause on doing 10,000 hours of something, you know, uh, before you really commit to it? Maybe think a little bit first. Yeah, think first, definitely. I mean, the uh, the the idea that practice is and lots of practice is really important, I think, is completely uncontroversial for, for people who study, you know, skill acquisition. So, so I have no problem with that. But actually, Malcolm and I were were recently invited. We were we were kind of invited some years ago to to kind of debate this and and had a follow up in March, and it's on YouTube. And you can see where I sort of asked him if he feels any differently, and he said yes. He said I think and I now think I conflated two issues: hmm. the fact that you need a lot of practice to get good, with the idea that that means if you want to be good in X, you should do only X and starting as early as possible. And now I think that's wrong. And so I, I think that was a really astute take. So you still. Nobody's downplaying the importance of practice, but I think the way to get good at X in many cases in the more wicked learning environments is not just to do only X from as early as possible. David Epstein is the author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you want to know more about some of the research on specialization versus generalization that we've talked about, we've got it for you at our website. There you will also find the story of Susan Polgar and her sisters who became some of the best chess players in the world. 
and you'll find the conversation between David and author Malcolm Gladwell that he just mentioned, in which they discuss how athletes really get good at their sports. That's all at innovationhub.org. And finally this week, your feedback from a segment we aired recently about new research into how politics has changed. Most of us sense that we live in a particularly polarized time, and that sense is right. The question is why. For many of us, the reason that we really, really dislike folks on the other side of the political spectrum comes down to a series of concrete issues on which we're right and they're wrong. But most of the evidence shows that actually relatively, you know, Americans are relatively moderate on a lot of issue positions. There's not a whole lot of actual policy-based disagreement. In fact, it's it's this sort of partisan attachment that allows Democrats and Republicans to really dislike one another. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're disagreeing. It, it just, you know, it's possible for for real animosity and conflict to come simply from group identities alone. That's Liliana Mason, a professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland. You know, this notion that people are driven by policy and not team is just laughable. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump's presidency is probably the best example of it ever. Mark Hetherington is a professor of political science at the University of North Carolina. Because of this teamsmanship, you know, we have the biggest budget deficits, you know, that we've ever had, you know, right now. Uh, you know, more spending on things like infrastructure, things that are completely antithetical to the old time Republican ideology. All right. So, you know, that should mean a lot of Republicans shouldn't approve of the job Donald Trump's doing. But he's not a Democrat. And that's all that matters in this day and age. As Mason and Hetherington told us a few weeks back, we've become two societies, separated not primarily by concrete issues, but by different ways of life, different TV programs that we like, different places that we live, different ways that we parent, different cars that we drive, different teams that we're on. And that hit close to home with listeners who see this polarization reflected all around them, including in dating apps. So, you know, there have been a lot of things that have surprised me about the dating apps, but I think without a doubt, the most striking thing has been how many people essentially require you to conform to their political beliefs. Jeff is a graduate student in public policy who lives in Washington, D.C. Quite often, profiles will say something to the effect of, uh, you know, Republicans swipe left. Uh, and that, that's on the friendly side. I mean, the, these things can get pretty nasty. So I, I, I really. And indeed, the resistance to having close relationships from neighbor to spouse with someone from a different party has surged in recent decades. In 1960, about 5% of people said they'd be upset if their child married a person of the opposite party. Now it's closer to 40% which explains why so many people tell you to swipe left, a.k.a. move on, if you don't agree with them politically. And it also might explain why another one of our listeners, Jennifer, was so concerned when her partner's father, a longtime Democrat, started dating and then married a Republican. We just, we couldn't imagine it. We could not picture, like, what will that be like? How does that work? Um, you know, dad is just so politically 
inclined in, in one direction, and I, we just couldn't imagine how, how will they converse. Jennifer lives in Westboro, Massachusetts, and she said she saw herself reflected in our discussion of extreme polarization. Talking to people um, who are, you know, polar opposites of us when it comes to politics. It just, we really feel like it's too hard to even be around them or listen to them because it's just so antithetical to our beliefs. And we, we honestly do tend to have very little respect for people whose beliefs are so different. And, you know, there were things that were said that I made me feel a little ashamed to have these thoughts. Clark from Boulder, Colorado, noted something our experts also noted, that political parties used to be more eclectic and diverse geographically. He wrote that, quote, decades ago, the parties were objectively more similar. There were Republican liberals and moderates, especially in the Northeast, like Senator Edward Brooke of Massachusetts. Now, he says, there are no Republican liberals, and even the very few moderates, like Senator Susan Collins of Maine, are really, in his view, conservatives. And a listener from Jersey City, New Jersey, tweeted to us that the problem is asymmetric. Democrats hate Republicans, he argued, but, quote, Republicans are more focused on day-to-day issues and protecting the American identity. Which, I think, merits a closing comment from Liliana Mason at the University of Maryland about how radically our political lives have shifted. Our ability to think about the other side as even sort of human is diminished because the less contact we have with outsiders, the more we can sort of dehumanize them and think of them as other. It's sort of this, you know, vicious cycle where the more that we dehumanize them, then the less we want to have contact with them. If you want to listen to our whole show on political polarization and the history of how things got this way, which winds its way past John Wayne and Jane Fonda, you can find it on our podcast or by hitting to innovationhub.org. And as always, we love hearing your thoughts. who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Nadia Lewis and Emily Grafenius. And this week, we bid farewell to our intrepid associate producer and former intern, Asil Kibbe, who we were lucky to have work with us. We're grateful she was able to rejoin the team, and we wish her lots of luck as she moves on. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.